0: Hi and welcome to the School Should Be podcast, a chance to hear from students, teachers and professionals to learn about all the things School Should Be. My name is Zahara and I am the founder of School Should Be. I've worked in schools for the past 10 years in a variety of roles from a classroom teacher to an education consultant. Schools are clouded by so many barriers, however my experience has shown me it is possible to overcome social and economic hurdles, archaic curriculum structures and be part of the unlearning process that our students and teachers need now more than ever. This podcast will explore a variety of themes, topics and viewpoints, all of which can make school a better place for students and teachers. I hope it helps you learn and smile along the way too. Please do leave a review, share and help us grow the School Should Be community. Right, let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the School Should Be podcast. I'm really excited today to be joined by Hannah, Hannah Wilson. Hi Hannah.
1: Hi Sahar, it's lovely to be here.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, sorry I just double named you there, Hannah, Hannah <laughs> 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 um, but hannah is a leadership development consultant coach and trainer and specializes in diversity equality and inclusion and today we're going to be talking about um is, and which is very um topical at the moment and necessary how teachers can navigate change management and difficult conversations in schools um which i know hannah you have an extensive amount of experience with Um, but I'd love to like just hear from you about your story and how you came to doing this work within diversity equality and inclusion
1: yeah it's an interesting one isn't it how we how we get called to do this work so I think my calling began when I chose my degree topic and I know we've had a similar path when it comes to our training but as an English student doing GCSE in A level I was very keen to read diverse texts and it wasn't part of the diet of my own curriculums when I was looking for my own degree and I wanted to do a literature degree I specifically looked for a post-colonial literature degree mm. and I've always been an absolutely avid reader and, and love traveling and experiencing different cultures so I think really it was age 17 18 this journey kind of started with my reading preferences and my curiosity about the world and thinking about identity and belonging and representation through what I was actually immersing myself in so when I then trained to be an English teacher post graduating for my degree, I guess I brought that into who I was as a teacher. I've worked in really diverse schools in South London. And just that consideration for the texts we're teaching and the representation of identities within those texts, I guess it's always just been there. And then that then sort of like led into representation in the workforce. So as the aspiring female head teacher at this point, I was an assistant head just about to step into a deputy headship role. That's when I co-founded Women Ed because I was looking for visible female role models who were senior leaders, who were married with children, who were who were juggling and harmonising that Mm. that that work life um, balance that we all strive for. And Women Ed propelled me into the grassroots scene where I began speaking at events and holding events and blogging about gender inequities and gender inequalities. And that then opened up the door for other grassroots networks. So we saw this advent over the last six years of um, women ed, BAME ed, LGBT mm. ed, disability ed. And I got very involved in the kind of grassroots scene and networking in that space. So I diversified my network around me. And then it was when Betty and I were working together as head and deputy head at our school in South Oxford that we co-founded. That's when we began to have conversations about intersectionality and kind of like cohesive and coherent conversations, and that's when Diverse Ed came to life mm. um, as an annual grassroots event. And then once I left Headship, as we got into the pandemic and as everything was kind of kicking off with a real spotlight on diversity, equity, inclusion in the world, I got asked more and more to support schools and do work in that space. So it's interesting how you have your intention, but you also have demands from others and it, those journeys, those paths kind of get aligned, I guess.
0: I guess people don't realise, like just from listening to you there, people don't realise it's a need or a gap until it's actually addressed. Like so many experiences for people with protected characteristics or from diverse backgrounds are normalised. But that in itself is problematic until, like you said, you raise it as a problem um, or as like, hang on a second. Why are we? Why are we not? Why do we not have more diverse curriculum? Why do we not have more diverse policies for recruitment and retention?
1: Mm. absolutely so so that's kind of been the path i've walked and, it, and it's been an interesting one as a heterosexual cisgender white able-bodied woman i'm very aware that i haven't mm. got lived experience of the characteristics but i've also been in those leadership spaces for a long time mm. where i can be that ally that advocate and i can help to disrupt and i'm known i think you know me quite well so how i'm yeah. known to be a bit of a god <laughs> i've <I'm> candid. <laughs> i've done that ask how i will an honest question you get an honest with honest response and i think I bring that candor to those spaces where I am in mm. to ask challenging questions and to hold people to account. and like one of one of my memories is doing um a key a keynote um breakout room at one of the big um, leadership conferences in the Midlands, and my session on inclusive recruitment had been misbranded, and the title wasn't quite what I've been asked to talk about. So it got into the room people who thought they were coming for some quick tips on how to recruit people. And I was there to talk about diversifying recruitment and inclusive recruitment. Wow. So you can imagine, I had a sea of like two hundred white men, predominantly not bold, white men. They were all they were all lovely, but they weren't quite expecting me to give them yeah. quite a lot of challenge. And it was a very interesting conversation when I asked them to really think about where the diversity in their schools sat, because they, a lot of them were commenting that they they worked in diverse schools, mm. but they weren't looking at who held power in which spaces and who was on their governing body, their SLT, their middle leadership, who was teaching staff who was non-teaching staff, they were seeing, they had diversity, but they weren't truly looking at it and analyzing about where those blocks in the pipeline were. So for me, there's interesting conversations like that where we where we hold the mirror up and we get people to to really look at what's going on rather than just seeing the kind of the surface level.
0: And that that's so interesting because I guess now, and I, I love Diverse Ed and I've obviously like used so many of your resources and support. And I'm currently doing the Diverse Leaders um course. This isn't like a sales plug, by the way, for the oh, please. Like,
1: no,
0: no. <laughs> But no, it's been so useful because just of how practical it is and how, like you said, I think one of the most important areas of having these difficult conversations or even readdressing recruitment policies it, it comes down to you need to be that ally. you need to have that ally persona or at least embody allyship because i know people have a bit of a problem with that word or you know it's it is disruptive but actually like you said with your background and your like the cisgender female white woman able-bodied that's who you want that's who you need as your allies and then you need men like <laughs> as allies as well um but I think everything you've just said looks at change management in schools where education as we know very traditional doesn't really change um and change management is something when I was working with businesses very like sporadically and barely scratched the surface is something that you know they put all the time in their job descriptions uh, that it's always there like you know you could be that could almost be your job title um, it's not so common in schools but it's something that we probably do without knowing um, what does it how how does diversity and inclusion feed into change management um, within the school setting like what's involved with with that
1: It's an interesting question because actually my pathway into being a leadership development consultant coach and trainer is because I've always been heavily involved in the delivery of the MPQs. So when I worked at a big trust and I was, I ended up before I became a head being the professional learning lead across a massive group of schools and leading Mm -hmm. on CPD, actually that was the module I led on the MPQML and the MPQSO and the MPQH. It was the change leadership module that used to be on the old framework. So that theory has really helped for looking at some of those models looking at the Kubler-Ross change curve looking at the Rogers um change curves like there's lots of different really interesting models out there and I think the disconnect with DEI is that all the heads and all the deputy heads in the country who have done the NPQs know the change leadership theory Mm. and they apply it to whole school things all the time but it's like we're forgetting to draw on that as a resource when we're doing DEI because DEI feels big and DEI feels difficult and DEI mm. feels like something that we don't know enough about to really grasp. So for me, that bridge is really important. That actually, we think about the leadership theories and behaviours and change models we're already using in our schools to drive school improvement, to drive new policies and strategies. And we think about how does this apply to a DEI change framework? Mm. So when I'm running sessions for governors and heads and, and trust teams, I do ask them to look at the leadership theory of change Mm -hmm. and I also get them to look at the culture intelligence framework because that's a really interesting model of framework as well it helps people to then map out the kind of the workflow Mm -hmm. because I think your point about being practical is really important I I use the golden circle a lot from Simon Sinek and the why the how the what and I think as as school teachers and school leaders we jump to the what we like to get busy we like to do we like to fix we like to find solutions but to pull back and to be really clear on the why and to be really clear on the how and what we're going to implement and how we're going to implement it and how we're going to evaluate it, but what naturally flows out of that. And I think sometimes we just don't use the theory we've already got in our in our toolkit.
0: And that makes so much sense, especially when we think of like, again, schools day to day, like CPD structures. What What are you actually prioritising in the time that teachers have outside of lessons because that time is so precious can feel so limited but yet could be so valuable to those lessons to their day to staff retention sick even sickness rates I always think like if staff have a better sense of the why the how the what you're less like you're more likely to feel like you belong and want to be at work
1: um, I, I agree, and I think I think the thing that schools focus on is that we need to diversify our curriculum, and we need to make sure our policies are diverse and our staff teams diverse. But actually, we need to be focusing on inclusion. We need to be focusing yeah. on the culture. We need to be and focusing on the behaviours, the language, the interactions. That's the bit that needs to change. But because mm-hmm. it's less tangible, it's more abstract and less concrete, it perhaps feels harder. So we then default to the what can we write what can we do what can we publish to show we're doing this work and I think Absolutely. that's a real reframe we need to think about how do we pay attention to the culture of our workplace
0: yeah and uh, there's that book isn't it culture rules which I haven't read yet but it's so culture makes all the difference and I guess the last few years has really had an impact on difficult conversations and school culture with hybrid learning covid um the the murder of george floyd um more recently you know sarah everard all of that has had like such a massive impact on schools and it is coming into classrooms it is coming into staffing structures and i guess schools just can't you just can't avoid it anymore um do, do you find it i i find that just from my limited experience that it comes across as unprecedented, but actually it's not necessarily unprecedented. And therefore, lots of teachers I found feel scared to have, and I get it, like, because again, the time, like you've just said, the time isn't dedicated to the training, um, to be able to have difficult conversations. How would you say teachers... If, if, say, for example, they're in a situation, their environment isn't necessarily allowing or enabling that space and time uh, for the in-school training, how can you know your teachers on Twitter, your teachers um, who might be listening to this podcast, start overcoming that fear and having the difficult conversations with their students and with their staff about diverse issues? There's,
1: there's lots of want to unpack in that question. That's what to the very first thing you said there in the context that I think we really need to think about this as being a safety issue, we're talking mm-hmm. about who feels safe in society, who feels safe in our schools, and this comes under safeguarding DEI work is safeguarding work, yeah. and I think we really need to think about where the levels of psychological safety are in our school building which children feel safe in our classrooms and why which staff feel safe in our staff rooms and why and what are we doing about the culture of our school to ensure that we increase those levels of psychological safety so that people do have voice and agency and when they do tell us the microaggression we listen and we address it we don't gaslight it so I think that's just to address around the cultural piece and the lens and then I do think the last two years with with the kind of fragmentation of of life as we know it and being stuck behind computer screens and that remoteness I was I was doing some training at a school this morning and they were talking about the the emotional illiteracy and emotional immaturity that's kicking in secondary schools Mm. that children have two years of disrupted development and they've lost their ability to articulate themselves and interact with each other I do think there's a real there's something there for us to address that, yes, there's curriculum catch up from the last couple of years, but there's also social development catch up, that that recreating the culture, the sense of belonging, the sense of who am I in this school space is really important. And how do we create space for those conversations, both the students and the staff? So that's the first thing I wanted to say. Read um, how we go about it. For me, it, the self-directed learning is really important but that needs to be alongside what the CPD entitlement in a school is. So hmm. when I'm working with schools on, on DEI, I ask them to think about what's the universal offer, what training do all staff need, whether they're teachers, leaders or non-teachers, then what's the bespoke personalised offer for the safeguarding team versus the curriculum team versus the, the teaching assistants, what do they need to support them? So I think there's, there's some, we need to be really clear there on this being an ongoing development process where we are doing the work, we look in the mirror, we look out the window, we go through the sliding doors and we think about those different identities, but we can't expect everyone to do DEI training on their own time, on their own resource and on their own energy. And that's been a really interesting thing for me to navigate because I started doing this work in the grassroots around the day job, around a full-time job. People are used to be working evenings and weekends. People are used to be working for free. And then reposition myself as an independent, who actually needs to earn a living who wants to work Monday to friday nine to five and not every evening every weekend mm. there's been interesting pushback on that because ultimately we need to this is this is core business dei is part of the core business of a school what message are we sending if we expect people to do their training on a saturday and self-fund it yeah and when i and when i hosted that conference back in um november the first yeah. diverse event on a on a weekday mm. gosh i got pushback people wanted it to be on a saturday It's like, no, the school system needs to respect the fact that this is a curriculum conference. You wouldn't ask your head of geography to go to a geography conference on Saturday. So why are we asking the DEI leagues to go to a DEI conference on a Saturday? We need to position this in the central centre of the week. And we had 250 people there. A lot of people would have come had it been on a Saturday. But I do think there's some pushback there about we wouldn't ask other people in other roles to do it in their own time. So actually, we need to make sure that it is part of the core CPD offer.
0: Yeah, and that makes so much sense. And again, even... Um, in terms of like you said thinking about DEI as a safeguarding it's it's an intrinsic part of safeguarding you've got to think about your teachers and your staff from a pastoral point of view from a curriculum point of view and I think again it goes back to like you said at the very beginning readdressing the structure in the school because I've worked in schools where there are teachers who have their day-to-day teaching jobs which we both know that's like 80% of your time gone. But then they'll also have a pastoral responsibility. They then might have a curriculum lead responsibility. They then might have an extracurricular responsibility. And I wonder if it's a case of if you're going to prioritize uh. something so important like DEI, do we look at restructuring the, the way progress look, uh, career progression looks and career development looks in, um,
1: in, in, in schools? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think also we need to make sure that DEI is something that everyone needs to do as part of their CPD rather Mm. than just the person responsible for DEI because everyone has to do safe body training. Everyone has to. And and, and I think we have to parallel the fact that everyone should do DEI training. There should be different levels of DEI training you do, but I do think it should be an ongoing conversation, an ongoing opportunity. And I think you're right, like really thinking about who needs what training in what ways. So like, what does the safe body team need? compared to the curriculum team it's a different conversation because the output's going to be different but there'll be some core knowledge they all need and we talk about developing confidence and developing competence and actually you need to walk that duality of that path that you've got the confidence to do the work and the confidence to have the conversations the confidence to bring the challenge but also Mm. the competence and the knowledge and the understanding of what you actually need to be doing. So going back to this idea of self-directed learning like for me it's diversifying your networks you're not in a group think echo chamber it's thinking about who you follow who you read who you listen to and I actually think we overcomplicate training sometimes because actually if each school had a, a discrete budget for CPD books and we curated the reading the staff do whether it's audio books or reading books like I've, I've learned most of the stuff I know about the world by reading yeah, so actually, that's Likewise. that's a cheap that's a cheap way to do CPD. That we have curated reading in every staff room, um, where people can nominate books they want to read. So for me, it's it's about being creative and innovative and disrupting some of those, like you say, structures and systems, mm-hmm. and actually think about how can we get the the maximum impact by just creating some space and some time and a small budget to do so
0: and that's that's so interesting because you're right like it goes back to what you said about the what in teaching we're so used to always it's a very practical job you're on your feet all day and if you're not and I find that now that I'm not in a teaching role and that's been what three or four years to a set like if I'm sitting in front of my laptop doing necessary work and reading it sometimes doesn't feel like work Uh I'm not marking I'm not standing in front of a class I'm not being the reactive um I'm just not being reactive there's no kids and I think that's something that from a psychological standpoint in terms of have even learning about having difficult conversations is something schools could potentially support their staff with more to say reading is work like doing the research is work
1: I completely agree. When I was doing my MPQH, one of the head CEOs who came to talk to us was Helena Mills from BMAT and she said just that to us, like carve out weekly reading time and weekly reflection time and see as part of your leadership responsibility, your leadership remit, that you have got to upskill yourself and you've got to create that space for Headspace. And if you don't do that, you're not going to be the best version of you as a leader, and actually if you have that model from the top that people do have creative time, reflective time, writing time, planning time, actually that then becomes a cultural shift, that we're prioritizing the assimilation of learning, learning, and the kind of the strategy then is really, really clear and evolves, as opposed to, us just all getting really busy, being reactive and and doing like flash in the pan tokenistic quick fixes yes. rather than like longer more sustainable more embedded strategies
0: so would you say that's almost like as much as the podcast we're talking about difficult conversations and like school change management it sounds as if like before you can even talk about the practicalities of having a difficult conversation you almost school's and teachers themselves, like obviously within the school structure, we need to create that time to do the reading and the training and the thinking first before think. Is
1: that right? Or? Yeah, I, I I agree. So we one of the our mantras is do the inner work to do the outer work, mm. and people get busy doing the outer work, but actually we need to do the inner work. Where's the where's the time to reflect, to read, to process, to be introspective, to understand ourselves, mm. to then understand others, to then actually do the activity? And I think everyone wants quick fixes and want things to be done in like this minute, like this term, this year. But actually, this is a longer piece of work. I talk about it being like a three, five, seven year plan, mm. not a one, two year plan. And I think because I've held those roles in schools where I've been like the calendar gatekeeper, I've been the CPD gatekeeper, I'm a real planner. So yeah. like, we should be planning the, the kind of the CPD opportunities for the next three years, thinking about how are we going to curate that learning? How are we going to build in that time? That Like, mm-hmm. should every CPD session be busy with someone talking at us? Or can mm-hmm. it be time for a curriculum team to have a conversation? And whenever I run um, training for all staff, They always say, and when are we going to have time to then have this conversation? So I now broker that with the client before I do the delivery. I say that, and on this date, you're going to have your curriculum 90 minute twilight. Just talk about the first thing in the curriculum. So I do think we need to carve out that curated input content, but also the time to process it and to talk about it because schools are so busy. We don't have time to, to think, we don't have time to reflect, we don't have time to talk about these really important topics but Mm. actually that's where the growth and where the learning happens
0: and so this is kind of going off on a slight tangent (laughs) well not tangent but it's related but it wasn't one of the questions (laughs) like
1: in (laughs) in
0: terms of if you're a teacher on the ground and you know you don't have a responsibility um but you've been teaching at that particular setting for a few few years and you've noticed the gaps when it comes and they are DEI, everything that we've just been talking about and you you really want to convince your head, you want to have that difficult conversation with your deputy or your head teacher to say we need to carve out time for this and there is some resistance because you know I've heard from certain uh, people that you know I get it, it's scary, it's scary for schools to perhaps uncover or unpick elements, it's difficult work, like you know, and it's uncomfortable work. How how can a how can a teacher, or not even a teacher, how can a member of staff have that convince their leader, whether it be their line manager or the head teacher, that we must, we need to create space for this, especially if they've got that resistance.
1: That's a a great question, okay. I think firstly just thinking about that, whether it's DEI or not DEI we shouldn't always wait for a job to be advertised before we apply for it, but there are jobs mm. that don't exist in schools to so be bold and propose. Mm. I have created jobs for myself in schools where I've gone to the head and said, I've noticed that no one's responsible for X, Y, Z. Would you like me to take it on? Mm. And I was talking to a friend this week about the fact that when I was developing my career, two things were different. It was someone last night actually, two things were different. We used to have to do things for free to get the experience and the exposure to then be remunerated for it. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the right way, That everyone expects to be paid for everything these days. And actually, mm-hmm. a lot of us earn our stripes by taking on small projects and taking on whole school responsibilities to prove ourselves to then get that next step. And budgets are tight. So think about what you can leverage and negotiate that's not just financial. Like I've negotiated um, admin time, admin support, an office, a laptop, mm-hmm. CPD. So I think that's one thing to think about. Secondly, it's also then thinking about um, who is the person who's going to be that listening ear? That we don't always go to the right person, the mm-hmm. person who's got the leverage, the person who's got the sphere of influence. So if, for example, you think there's a gap in the CPD offer, rather than talking to your line manager to then talk to the CPD leader, go and see the CPD leader and perhaps share some of the CPD you're doing, some of the reading you're doing, or put your hat in and volunteer to run a session or, or to organize a speaker for one of the insects. Like when I was responsible for the CPD across this massive school, the big budget, I love people volunteering. Exactly. I could organize it all myself easily, but actually for people to volunteer to input or to help co-create or curate some of that, that was great. So I'd, I'd say be courageous and be bold because there's probably, there's probably interest there, but are you talking to the right people and are you proposing the right things? Offer to run the staff cpd book club yeah ask for 200 pounds from the cpd leader and order letter books there's things you can do to influence others to see it as stepping stones where you're expanding your own influence you're tapping into the right people as well
0: that's really good advice and again it's not an overnight change um and i have to say that thing about i i i was just thinking about my early experience you do do a lot for free and i'm just doing that in quote marks is that Air quotes, what do we call them? Um, well,
1: they can't see them. I can you see them. Know? <laughs>
0: um, but you do it because you, in teaching and learning and being in, obviously, you enjoy that. I get that. But equally, this stuff is stuff that you're like, it's about my career development. I actually have, I'm learning that I've got an interest in it. So take that as the value and the development as opposed to it always being monetary. I think that's, a re- that's really good advice for, um, especially for new teachers who almost come out of their like with the new ECT program set up. And I, and I know that DEI is making more of an entrance on teacher training, but then they might come into a school where they're like, whoa, this doesn't reflect my training at all, but then wow. create, like you said, create opportunities for yourself.
1: Mm. but equally if you are self-investing if you are going to twilights and weekends and holiday training always go back to school and yeah. let them know you're doing it and even like i used to say to all my staff when i was deputy head and ahead please claim back if you're paying for a yeah. ticket to go to diverse ed woman ed whatever it is on a saturday then we should be compensating you for that but mm. ask us in advance so we can so dream sometimes that self-directed learning happens your own time but, but let the school know you're doing it because that's Mm. showing that you're investing in yourself and upskilling yourself and and demonstrating that commitment as well.
0: Absolutely. And like, I guess that sort of leads me um, to like the final couple of questions about creating this. So everything you've said is so inclusive in terms of opening up those conversations with the right people. How, if you are, what would you say would be a few kind of practical, simple ways I don't know whether that, maybe they're not simple, but um, schools can, we, we're we really good, I find, especially going back into schools now at creating and um, wanting to create an inclusive culture for students. And I get that. Students are the heart of any school. That's why it's why we exist. And teachers, naturally, you go into the job to teach. So I totally get that. But then rec- retent, recruitment, like... Um, and retention and like, I've forgotten the word for it, but turnover, for sure. that's, yeah, it's kind of, it's in, it's, it's crazy, like <laughs> across some schools and it's something that I know that, you know, he- head teachers with the best will in the world, they can, they can struggle with. Um, h- how can schools start to create that inclusive culture um, so that they are retaining talent? They are then able to have difficult, com- more comfortable, uncomfortable conversations
1: a couple of different things like firstly an exit interview is too late why are we asking people once they've resigned why are they resigning why are we finding out from the horse's mouth everything they've experienced and what's gone wrong then that we need to have more opportunities to staff voice little and often so we're keeping informed so i know there's some great practice out there from heads and ceos in my network who all staff get two one-to-ones with the head every year, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just check in, mm. just to keep your finger on the pulse and know people's ambitions, but also know where people are disgruntled, disgruntled mm. and, and what, can we, what can be done. So I think those those conversations, those one-to-one opportunities is really important. Secondly, thinking about how we do staff voice, I think quite often we throw surveys out of people and ask people to fill in loads of questions and then that information is never shared and the next steps aren't really, really clear. So when whenever, we did a lot of work on mental health and well-being when I was head, and whenever we did a staff survey, we did it twice a year. We then every week in briefing did a you said we did. Mm. so we couldn't have a magic wand we couldn't do all 40 things the staff wanted us to do but we could pick off the ones we could do and each week my staff my staff mental health and well-being lead who's also my staff governor would do an update so I think there's something there about the communication loop that we quite often ask people to bear their hearts and souls and they disclose a lot and then it goes into this chamber which doesn't get addressed Mm. and people are less likely to then disclose again so I think there's the communication strategy in a school is really really important. I think the other thing to think about is the CPD offer. And quite often, the CPD gets decided and it feels like it's being done to you, as opposed to you having ownership and agency about how you want to be developed. So, thinking about that two way process of how staff can let us know what training they need or what training they'd like to pursue, and thinking about how we then dovetail that together, I think that's something to consider as well. I think other things are just around like who gets opportunities to go on leadership programs, who gets opportunities mm. to be mentored and coached. It needs to be much more transparent and much more equitable about who gets talent spotted and who gets those opportunities. I've worked in in, in schools and heard some horror stories about nepotism, where mm. it doesn't feel like it's transparent, it doesn't feel like it's open, it feels like it's a done deal, and there's a boys' club, and some people's names are already on those opportunities, and your face is not fit, so you're not going to get invested in. So I think we really need to. Um, make sure we're being absolutely transparent within all those opportunities that that all staff feel valued and invested in as well.
0: And that's like, I guess that comes down to brand and identity too. Like from the, like you said, don't start at the exit interview, but start at the beginning of your recruitment process. Like why should people come and want to work for your particular school or your trust or your college? Um, Because that's what they'll buy into as opposed to thinking like, I'll be honest, like you can pretty much predict the recruitment process, um, no matter what school you go to, can't you as a teacher? But if they have that angle of looking at inclusive culture and apply and, and actually make those areas that you've just highlighted transparent,
1: I talk about, like, what's the employer's promise? Like, in, in corporate sector, there's a, there's a there's a commitment, there's a promise of what experience you're going to have and what offer you're going to have. And I, and I do think you're right. I think we need to be much clearer and much more honest at the recruitment, attraction, marketing phase. Like, I used to be really, really direct with prospective teachers and members of staff at our school and say, like, we are my, my I'm my might. This is who we are, this is who we're not. Mm. If you don't like what you're hearing, don't apply for a job at our school. And they used to look at me like, who is this woman, <laughs> but the right people that applied, the yes. people who got us and were aligned with our vision and mission and values applied and they knew what they're buying into. And I think yeah. sometimes we we almost dilute ourselves and make us more generic to get more applications, but actually then how do you get that fit in that alignment of people truly knowing where they're gonna be working? If your school's a challenging school, say it's a challenging school. A lot of people mm. want to work at a challenging school. Don't pretend it's not a challenging school if your school isn't diverse or if there are problems in the community be honest about it and call to action people who want to be part of that solution but they but they know they need to they need to be resilient it's going to be a difficult journey to perhaps get there so I think I think sometimes we do people a disservice by not being upfront and honest
0: yeah no that makes so much sense and so last question before I let you go being DEI Lead in a school. It's probably more of a personal question, actually. But being DI <laughs> lead in a school is tough. Even if you've got it as a TL or in any organisation, you know, it's hard. It's emotionally draining, and you've you've spoken about well-being and mental health and having difficult conversations is really really tough. Um, even though it's necessary, how? What advice would you give to a professional? So I'm not going to say teacher because lots of people work in schools um to manage that challenge because I'm sure you've had plenty of challenging experiences in the workplace from when you started to now in consultancy Uh um how how can we encourage people professionals and therefore then students to keep going with such necessary work Uh such difficult conversations
1: so I think there's a couple of things there. I think you really need to think about your support network. Like who is your mentor, your coach? If you're if you're doing DI work it is parallel to um safeguarding work so you should have supervision. But like you're you're dealing with trauma, you're having disclosures about people experiencing hate crimes. Like for me you really need to look after yourself and as patrick o'connor says like put your own um, oxygen mask on before you put other people's oxygen masks on. So you're looking after your own well-being so that you are resilient in order to um to carry and navigate what's going to be quite a lot of adversity. I think that's really important. So having that support circle, but then outside of the support circle, thinking about like the network you are growing around you as well, of people with lived experience, with expertise who've walked that journey before you, ahead of you. Mm. So you've got people like critical friends, really, like people who are doing the same job or have done the same job or who have supported someone doing the same job. So you're widening that net of people um, around you. I think that's really important. I think it's thinking about who your allies are within your workplace because I don't know anyone who holds all nine protected characteristics so thinking about how you're building that diversity around you of different people with different experiences who sit at different levels of the organisation so they are advocating for you and the work you're leading as you are advocating for other people so I think they're they're some of the things to consider and then from a kind of a personal commitment motivation point of view I think it's about being compassionate to yourself, but also managing your own expectations. That, that pe- like, Those people who step into this are pioneers, are change makers, and they want to change the world tomorrow. And actually being realistic about this being a sustainable transformation over time, and how are you gonna create legacy that lives on when you leave the building, when you leave the role? And actually you might not even see the impact of your work as a DEI leader while you're doing the role. It might be mm-hmm. once you've left in three years time that you, you see that impact. So I think managing, like, being realistic about that is really important because otherwise we constantly turn ourselves off everything we've not done. Mm-hmm. And I think that's my, my final thing is that, that that DEI can quite often become a deficit mindset and a deficit model that we pick holes in all the things we're not doing as opposed to that impressive inquiry of what we what have we impacted, what have we done? And when we when we make our DI leaders tell us what we've actually done the last month, we're like, wow, like you guys are so impressive. And, and they've come in like shoulders like stumped because they feel like they haven't done their to-do list. So I think we need to have that affirmation of what we are doing and the things we're chipping away at, and hold on to that as opposed to beating ourselves with the with the list of things we haven't done as well. Mm.
0: That's really helpful advice. I'm going to use that advice (laughs) even for myself. But thank you so much for your time, Hannah. It's been such a a useful conversation for um, teachers, especially, well, like I said, staff, like professionals in the workplace, because it is becoming more of an apparent conversation and something staff just need confidence in to be able to have. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And, And we're courageous every day as teachers. Like, we don't shy away from the difficult conversations when it comes to. Um, things like safeguarding. So you have got the skills. We can all be courageous. We can all have difficult conversations. We just need to lean into them and see them as learning opportunities as well.
0: And there's lots of information on the Diverse Ed platform and people can get in touch with you um, for their schools um, or even just themselves because you coach as well. Um, and maybe even get your school to fund that.
1: <laughs> there you go. And yeah, please, please do get in touch. Check out all the resources. There's lots and lots of free support materials on the Diverse Ed website.
0: Thank you so much, Hannah, for your time.
1: Really appreciate it. My pleasure. It. Thank you, Sahara. See you soon.
0: See you soon. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, please do leave us a review and share it with your friends and family so they can also learn all about what school should be. Until next time, speak to you soon.